Hello, and welcome to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode is the case study episode, and this one will be split into three parts. I am going to do a case study that mirrors the first three episodes in this series on alternative movements in the education system. So what I'm going to do is do a case study on some existing formal school, and that would be the Sudbury school model. I didn't do a lot about private schools in the first episode in this series. I covered public schools and different programs related to that, magnet schools, charter schools, that kind of stuff. So now I'll focus on a specific private school that has a very unique model. That would be the Sudbury model. Then I will do a case study of the Ron Paul homeschooling curriculum. So that is a very specific homeschooling curriculum, and it is one that is very structured, but still very focused on being a student-led learning experience. Then the final example will be the Praxis program, and this is a college alternative that does an intensive boot camp and then an apprenticeship, and they have a cool structure with that that is something we'll talk about at the end. So, Let's start off by talking about the Sudbury School method. I've listened to a few interviews with some of the original founders of the first Sudbury School, and so a lot of this content came from that, but I've also listened to a lot more stuff, interviews from children that have gone through the Sudbury Schools, as well as read some articles and that kind of thing, so that's where I'm getting my information from. I say this because the Sudbury School method or system is not one that is a franchise model or that is completely universal. Every Sudbury school is different, and so some of them have different ideas. They carry it out in a different way. The overall basics, as far as I have been able to tell, are the same in all of them, same philosophies and stuff, but some of their approaches might be a little bit different. So I just wanted to say up front that the main source that I'm going off of is the original first Sudbury school and uh, also a little bit from some other sources and some students as well. So to begin with, what is the overall philosophy for the Sudbury method? Well, it has a very similar philosophy to the unschooling approach that I talked about in relation to homeschooling approaches, and that is one that is very unstructured and student-led, where the students are the ones that are deciding what they're going to learn about and what they're interested in, and they pursue those interests with some help and guidance. But with the Sudbury method, they are very intentional about saying that this is not unschooling, because they actually believe that it is extremely important for kids to be involved in a community and learn the process of community and society, culture, democracy. These kinds of things are very important, which you don't really get, at least you don't always get, in an unschooling method at home. And there are some other unique differences as well, such as the fact that the Sudbury philosophy is one that says that the local community is the core of a society and always has been throughout history, whereas many other people would argue that the core family unit is the foundation of every society throughout history. And that's more the approach that I take and that I get when I study history. 
I've talked about that in multiple episodes about the importance of the family unit and how out of the family unit, you have hierarchy that comes up. You have tribes that expand as that family unit grows and people get married and have kids and you end up with a tribal culture. All of that is built on the family unit. So I do have a disagreement with them on this as well as some other things, but in general, that is one of the big differences between them and unschooling as well is just that focus on community and being around their peers and having that be one of the core pieces of their education and their development as being a part of society versus the family unit like it would be in a homeschooling model where it's the parents that are having this major influential role that are interacting with the kids more than any other people or groups. So overall, going back to a historical viewpoint, the idea is that schools are relatively new development. They haven't been around all that long in relation to culture and civilizations and society as a whole. And with this, it is not something that had always been deemed as necessary. Throughout history, kids used to learn through interacting and living in society, and what they do is they learn what's relevant to them, and they're going to learn what they need to know. They're going to learn what they feel like will help them and benefit them in the future, and what their parents help teach them and steer them towards. So, for example, if they are a part of a family that lives on a farm, then more than likely they're going to learn about all these different aspects. They're going to be helping on the farm. But if one of the kids, for example, uh, prefers the trade of being a blacksmith and is not really the farmer type, well, they're probably going to start learning some of those skills that a blacksmith uses. And as they get older, they're probably going to go apprentice with a blacksmith and they're going to learn through that method. There is no formal school before or after pursuing being a blacksmith. And the same would be true if they wanted to be a farmer. They would learn these skills on the farm, working with their parents and the farmhands and the other kids, and they would probably slowly take over some of the responsibilities and then maybe break out on their own and start their own farm. And so they would end up learning everything they need to know to make a living and to better themselves and pursue their interests without actually formally going to school. The same would be true in an urban setting. The children would go around throughout the city. They would interact with different people. They'd go to the market. They might sell little things or run little errands for people or pass messages or whatever. And through doing all these things, they are learning about how that city works, how that culture operates, what is okay, what's not okay, what kind of skills make them important to other people and help them to stand out. They are experiencing lots of different people with lots of different trades, and so maybe they can figure out what they're interested in and start talking to those people and interact with them and then start learning those things, and that's how they would pursue their interest. But again, the idea is that they're not actually sitting down in a classroom at a school. And so 
The idea is that they are just learning through exposure and being involved in that local community and that local society, whatever that looks like. And throughout history, if there was formal schooling, typically it was something that was short term that the parents might pay a teacher or a tutor for, but it wasn't something that was this whole mandated 12-year or more program where they're basically locked inside of a building being told what to think and how to think and what's true and listen to authority and follow these directions and you must ask for permission to do this, that, or the other and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've talked about this stuff many times on the podcast, so I won't get into it. But back to the Sudbury philosophy, the idea is that even though throughout history, that is how kids have learned by interacting with their local communities, that's not necessarily safe anymore today in today's world. Ever since the Industrial Revolution and lots of other aspects, kids can't really just go wandering around through the city. Number one, they are probably not going to be safe to be crossing roads and walking on roads when they're little kids. That's probably not a good idea, much less the you know obvious issues with possibly getting kidnapped or getting injured or hurt. The world is not built and operated in a way that is very safe for children to be out on their own in most cities and local towns, at least. I'm sure there are still some places that that would work out well for, but in general, in modern society, that's not really something that works very well. So the Sudbury School steps in in this void where the kids need somewhere to be to explore and to experience and to interact and learn what their position is in society and in their local culture. And so with a Sudbury School, you have a physical school, a physical location, but it is not one that has formal classes. It doesn't have any formal curriculums. It doesn't have really any formal learning in any way. There are some teachers, but it is not structured in a way where you have specific classes that kids go to. It is much more open to the kids pursuing what they want to pursue. They are open to explore and to experiment and to follow their interest and use all the resources in the school, use the teachers as a resource, work together on projects, basically do whatever they want to do and learn in an environment that's actually friendly to this and gives them the opportunities and the power and the safety to do this. So the idea is that in modern formal schools, you have a very autocratic, authoritarian, oppressive governance system and governance structures where the kids are told what to learn, they're told when to learn, they're told what rules you have to obey, what rules you don't, and the kids don't really have a say-so in what they're learning, what their classes look like, in what the punishment for rules are, or even what those rules are to begin with. The kids are basically just the subjects, and they have rulers over them telling them what to do. And so from a Sudbury perspective, this is not something that is very conducive to learning, nor is it very conducive to teaching someone how to be an engaged citizen in a democratic society full of liberty and freedom. The idea is that kids are people. They have equal value and they have equal rights, or at least according to the Sudbury proponents. And so it's not that kids have very little experience, they have very little knowledge, very little maturity, and so therefore there should be adults around that dictate what they do when they do it and that kind of stuff. 
the idea is kind of similar to the idea behind the women's rights movements of the past in that it was thought that women were not as smart as men. They're not as intelligent. They are under the authority and under the rule of their husbands. And so they need to just follow what their husbands tell them to do. And if you let them vote, for example, it's just adding another vote to their husband. They're not actually going to be very independent. And the women aren't as experienced. They're not out in the workforce. They're not out and involved in the same things that the men are involved in. They're just at the home doing their wifely duties. And so this was the idea that was propagated a lot in the past. And then you had the women's rights movements that have gone through at different times in different places. And they are basically saying that no, women actually are equal to men in many ways. They should have equal value. They should have equal rights. They should have equal opportunities. And so this is the model that's adopted by the Sudbury system as well, just related to kids instead of women. Yes, kids are less experienced. Yes, they have less knowledge. Yes, they are under the rule and authority of their parents, but that doesn't mean that they should be ruled over and told what to do in a school setting. Rather, they should actually have the power and the authority and the freedom and the right to make their own decisions and learn for themselves. And so that's what the Sudbury school system provides. A lot of these types of ideas are modeled on the Declaration of Independence and the founding philosophies of individual rights and liberty and freedom that America was founded on. One of the most important aspects related to this is democracy. The Sudbury School is very big on democracy, and they use that to its fullest extent. The school is built on a structure of pure democracy where all parties have equal votes, and this would be involving the kids and the staff. And so, Obviously, the kids have a lot more power than the staff because they greatly outnumber the staff. And this gives a lot of power into the hands of the kids, into the hands of the students. The schools will have a school council that makes all the decisions in that school. The school council will deal with the staff as far as hiring and firing and renewing contracts, this kind of thing. They also deal with the budget and that is in relation to resources and the building and the staff as well and all the different things that are included in a budget. They deal with rules for the school and programs that they may have. Really just everything that is involved in the school is handled by this school council, and it is largely made up of students, and it is a one-to-one voting ratio, and so the students basically have the majority power to make these types of decisions and run the school the way they want it to be run. Now, in addition to this school council, you have another group, and that would be the judiciary group. And this is a group of peers as well as teachers and staff that mediate disputes of all kinds. This could be anything from bullying to cheating in a class or stealing or vandalism, really just anything. And anyone has a right to take anyone else before the judiciary committee. 
apparently kids are a lot of times very scared the first time they go until they realize that this is kind of just a normal process within this type of school. It's not that big of a deal. So a kid might be sent to the Judiciary Committee by another kid for interrupting during a class, and the Judiciary Committee would hear the case, they would hear both sides of the argument, they would make a ruling, and that's how it would be handled. They might issue a very small punishment, not really anything major if it's not a very major offense. But the idea is that it is mostly your peers that are deciding what to do with you and what your punishment are and who is correct and who is not in a dispute. And so you have, number one, a lot of power to anyone that is at the school, staff and students both, because you can take anyone else before this committee. You also have a lot of power that is given to the community of the school as a whole because they, as a group, make decisions on how to handle any conflict that happens within that school. As far as the learning that the students are doing, they really decide what they want and what they need to learn themselves. Again, they have access to the different resources that might be at the school, maybe computers, 3D printers, whatever they have and whatever they've decided to purchase and to build and put together. And they also have the resource of the staff, of the teachers. If they want to learn about something specific, they can go to the science teacher and say, hey, I really don't understand this part of chemistry. Can you please explain this to me? Can you have a class on this specific subject? And kids will go to these classes, they'll learn the things they need to learn. Oftentimes, kids will pair up and they will form groups that are learning about the same thing and the same subject. And so if a lot of kids are interested in one thing, maybe it's animals, then there might be a group of them that get together and do some in-depth studies and projects related to veterinary medicine or something like that. And so you will have some classes, you will have some team projects, you will have a lot of cooperation and working together, but none of this is extremely formalized or systematized. At least, it doesn't look anything like a typical school. And so the main question that a lot of people ask is, how will these kids learn the basics if they're not forced to? If there is no one forcing them to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic, why would any kid want to learn geometry? Are they actually going to do that on their own? And the answer is just simply that they will learn these things the same way that you learn the things you need to know. Even children can see that if they don't know how to read, they're not really going to be able to make it in life. And if they actually want to do more than just make it and they want to be successful, they need to learn how to read well. They need to learn how to write well. They need to learn how to do not only basic math, but some more complicated math as well in relation to what they want to do. If they are interested in engineering-related fields, then they might pursue math even further. If they're wanting to go to college and get a degree, then they'll want to make sure they meet all the requirements that the majority of colleges require for students. And if they want to make sure they do really well on certain tests or certain certifications, then they're going to focus on those types of things. So unless a kid has basically zero regard for their own life, their own success, their own future, then they are going to learn the things they need to learn. They will be motivated to do so. They may not always enjoy every subject, but 
kids can still recognize that they need to know some of this basic stuff without being forced to learn it in a classroom setting. Another issue that often comes up is with parents. Many parents struggle with the concept, number one, and basically working out these types of things that I've just talked about, about how is my kid going to learn the things they need to learn? How are you going to make sure that they get everything they need as far as different fields in science or different mathematics classes or whatever? And so they worry about that. They worry that their kid isn't actually learning anything or doing anything. And so the concept in general is one that is tough for parents oftentimes. Another difficulty for many parents is the lack of power and say and control that they have in the school. Now, if you remember when I mentioned that everything is decided on by votes and you have a one-to-one voting ratio, I did say that that only includes the kids that go there, the students, and the staff. So the parents don't actually have any say whatsoever in how the school is ran. So a lot of parents have an issue with that. If they don't like something, well, they can't really do anything about it. Their kids can do something about it, and they can bring it up to the school council or to the judiciary committee if it's something that's negative or a conflict. But the parents themselves don't really have any power. They have to allow the local community of that school to figure things out and decide things and hear cases and do all of that on their own. And so that's something that a lot of parents really struggle with as well. Apparently, a lot of students have a really hard time when they first come into the school, especially if they're coming out of a formalized school setting, because they're used to having a set number of classes and specific classes in specific subjects with teachers lecturing them and giving them worksheets and giving them tests. And so they are very directed and very controlled in regards to their learning. And so they have a really hard time when they show up to this new school, a Sudbury school, and they just walk in the door and they don't really know what to do. They don't have a class to go to. They don't have a specific subject that they're learning or project they're working on. They kind of just show up and they do whatever they want to do, and they really don't know what they're supposed to do. And so apparently that's really tough for a lot of kids. What I have heard in many interviews is that it can take kids multiple months up to six months to really feel comfortable and figure that out and figure out how to structure their own learning, how to take control and take charge of that, how to teach themselves certain things and to know when they need help with something and what resources to use. All of this is stuff that they have to learn because you aren't taught that kind of stuff in a normal school setting, in a normal typical public school. They don't really teach you how to take control of your own learning. They tell you what you should learn and how to learn it and what resources to look at and what specifically you need to know. And you memorize this information right here and that's it. So the kids don't really ever learn how to take charge of these things on their own and learn for themselves. So when they get into the Sudbury model, it can be really difficult for them to figure out how to do that. They have to learn that whole process before and while they are trying to actually learn their normal 
education that they need to know to proceed in life and have a successful life and career. And so this is something that is another struggle that a lot of kids deal with as they come into the program. As I said, every school is different. So there are differences in how they handle the specifics of different aspects of this and what resources they have, how much staff they have, that kind of thing. Some allow visitors to come onto campus, but I heard multiple reports that schools had problems with visitors, problems with parents. There are some schools that actually banned parents from being on the campus. And again, this is done by the kids. And the kids have seen that this is a problem where parents come in, they try to take charge, they try to take control, they try to tell people what they can and can't do. And that doesn't really work very well within the Sudbury model. And so some of the schools have actually forbidden parents from coming onto the campus, as well as other visitors unless they're invited. So again, different ones have different rules, and they decide these things for themselves. There are schools all throughout the US as well as internationally and other countries. The biggest presence outside of the US as far as I can tell is in Japan, as well as many other countries all around the world. Now, overall, to wrap up this case study on the Sudbury School Method, their goal and philosophy is to create an environment that teaches people to be responsible. It teaches them to be a part of society, to be active learners and active citizens. They learn how to settle disputes. They learn how to mediate between two different parties. They learn how to debate. They learn how to see a problem or see a solution or see a chance to grow and to become better and to present that to a group and to discuss it and to vote on it. They learn how to be a part of a democracy. They learn how to take part in civil society. They learn how to get help when they need it and who to get help from, what resources they have available to them. They learn all these kinds of things. And again, the Sudbury method is very big on creating students that are going to be engaged citizens in a democracy and within their local communities as well as their local governments. And that is something that they are very big on. I'll now move on to the next case study example, and that will be the Ron Paul homeschooling curriculum. So obviously, this is a homeschooling curriculum, and this is one that is much more structured than a lot of the examples that I gave in the episode, specifically highlighting homeschooling in general. The idea here is that you have specific classes. They are all video-based. They all have a component of forums where kids interact and they discuss things, they ask questions, that kind of thing. The classes are very interactive with students and with teachers. You always have a writing or a speech day every week with all of your classes. So it's not just watching videos and talking about it on a forum, you're actually actively involved in a lot of this stuff as well. And most of the classes have a review day at the end of the week where they go back over everything that they've covered. So that's the general structure of the curriculum and what it looks like. One of the very big things that they push for overall is to get kids ready and able to pass CLEP exams and AP tests. If you're not familiar with these, the idea is that you can basically take a test 
and prove that you know everything you need to know to pass a specific college level course. And when you do this through one of these certified tests, such as a CLEP exam, you actually get college credit for a class. So if you believe that you have all the knowledge and information that you need to pass a college level biology class, you can take a CLEP exam for that. And as long as you pass it, you can get credit for college biology, however many credits that would be. And with these, oftentimes they are taken while you're in high school. And so they basically build up as if they were being stored away in a bank. Then when you go to college, you will have all these credits transferred to your college. So as you can imagine, if you're able to take a lot of these CLEP exams and pass them, you can get a huge head start on college. One of the teachers there, Bradley Fish, is someone that actually got his four-year bachelor's degree one month after he turned 18. And so he was obviously at a very young age, and the main way he did this was through CLEP exams. He took them starting as a teenager all the way through his high school years and pretty much was able to get almost everything he needed by the time he was able to start at a college, I believe at 17. And then, like I said, a month after he turned 18, he was able to finish with all the credits he needed for his bachelor's degree. Speaking of teachers, there are some very high quality teachers that I am personally pretty fond of. I have made references on this podcast before to the Tom Woods show and to Tom Woods. He is a historian and a libertarian and someone who is also a teacher with the Ron Paul homeschooling curriculum. Another person that I personally am fond of is Gary North. I've actually recently been reading some of his content just independently on my own. And then when I heard his name mentioned as I was doing research for this specific episode, that definitely piqued my interest even further. And I saw that he actually teaches some English classes and economics and I believe a government course as well. And so they do have some very high quality people that are teaching these courses and they are making sure that the kids are learning stuff beyond the just memorizing names, dates, and facts that you hear in school. They're actually learning about some of the stuff that I've talked about on this podcast. If they're learning about a specific war, they are actually going to hear about some of the corruption and some of the conspiracies and some of the ulterior motives that were going on behind the scenes, basically the stuff that isn't quite as pretty that they don't really teach in the public school system, you will hear about those things here. You will hear about how the Federal Reserve System was created and the people involved with the Rockefellers and J.P. Morgan, Rothschilds, all of them meeting at Jekyll Island. I've told that story before on this podcast. You're going to learn about all that kind of stuff. So that's really cool. It's not like me and I'm sure many of you where you don't learn any of this stuff until you're out on your own, you become an adult, you run across some of this type of information, and you have to dig into it yourself and find resources and learn it on your own. And that's not something that you are pointed towards or that you are taught in school. But through this curriculum, you learn that kind of stuff as well. So it's more of a complete education. They are also very big in general 
on liberty and free markets, and so most of their classes are oriented towards these types of things. The way I want to go over this curriculum is by actually highlighting some of the courses and classes and subjects that are covered within the Ron Paul homeschooling curriculum. I actually listened to some episodes of a podcast that the Ron Paul homeschooling curriculum put out. And in that podcast, there are interviews with the teachers for specific classes. They also play some of the intro videos to the specific classes to, for example, English 7, and then English 8, and then English 9, and Western Lit 1, Western Lit 2, Western Civ, all these types of courses. And so I could listen to specific episodes that talked about each one of these courses and interviewed the teachers and went over a lot of the material. So I found that very enlightening. And I thought that that really gave a good view of what this curriculum is really about and the types of things that they cover. So, for example, in their biology class, the overall focus is on research methods. And with this, this is how research is done. So kids aren't just told, well, there was a study that scientists did that found this, this, and this. No, they're told that, yes, there was a study and these were the results, but they're going to look into how that study was conducted, how the experiments were done, and how they can go back and look at that process and learn more about it, and also verify the results of the study. If there was a study involving three patients, that is a very small sample size that probably can't really be trusted if it's not backed up by other further studies or other examples. So the kids won't just look at a study and see the results of it, they're actually going to look at the details of that study and how it was conducted. They'll read excerpts from the study itself so that they learn that they actually can read source material. They can read a scientific study and actually understand it. It's not way out of their league. Most people would think that a scientific study is something they wouldn't even be able to comprehend a single paragraph of, but you actually can. I have learned this as well in a lot of my research, going back and reading source material, reading congressional reports and things like this. And it's actually very readable. It's not really that big of a deal. I've read ancient philosophers and classical literature, as well as, like I said, congressional reports and FBI reports and stuff, all with source documentation. And it's something that, you know, I can read, I can understand it. It's not all that complicated. I can look something up if I need to. And so that makes me a lot less hesitant, a lot less fearful to really look into that kind of stuff. And that's the idea that they're going for in this biology class with the students. Don't be scared to actually look into a study. Not only don't be scared to do it, you actually should do it. Don't trust the results and just count on all of the results being 100% true and only look at basically the headline of the results. Instead, look at how that study was done. And not only can you verify that it can be trusted, but you can also learn a lot about whatever the content of that study was. If it's a study on genetics, you're going to learn a lot about genetics if you figure out what the hypothesis was, how they went about the study, what the different tests were, and how they came up with their results. You're going to learn a lot more that way than just reading the results of this study and saying, oh, well, this aspect of genetics represents itself in this way, and that's it. You're also probably not going to remember it if you just get that, whereas if you really look into it and dig into it, read it yourself, you're probably going to learn a lot more. So again, the idea is you go to that source material and 
The other aspect of the biology class that they're very big on is linking and connecting multiple subjects. So it is how maybe genetics is related to something else that they are learning maybe in another class or how it is maybe related to DNA and then looking at plant DNA as well as human genetics and how these concepts are related and how they mirror each other, that kind of stuff. Basically, the idea is that in most school settings, you just learn facts and you just learn specific things and they're segregated into specific study lessons. Then when you master one, you take a test and you move on to the next. Whereas their biology class, what they do is they link their different studies together. So once you finish one, the next one will actually build on the one before and reference back to it a lot. And so they can really see how all these different fields and all these different studies and these different results and these different concepts link together and how they're connected and how they work together. And so that's another thing that they really try to teach a lot in that specific class. The next class I want to talk about is their history classes. There is a big focus here on trigger events. So obviously, when you cover history, if you're covering all of history, you're talking about like ancient Mesopotamia to the present. That's a lot of material. And so the idea is that they focus on trigger events that trigger significant change within a culture or a society or a specific invention that has a really big impact, such as the printing press and the Reformation, one that I'll be talking about in season two. And they will really go into detail into these specific events, and they're going to cover time periods in between trigger events, but they're really going to focus on these certain events, these certain people, these certain inventions that had a major impact on history. In general, the focus on their history classes is on Western civilizations and Western society, but they do what they call a world tour. And I believe this was a weekly deal where as they are learning about what's happening in Western society, they also hit on some highlights and some big events that are happening in the East and in other parts of the world at that same time period that they are covering in the focus on Western civilization. And so they really get a feel for what's happening in the world as a whole. And so even though they are focusing on the Western world, they are still hearing about what's happening in China, what's happening in Japan, what's happening in Africa at the same period in time and how they are related and connected to what they are learning currently in Europe or in the founding of America or whatever it is. There is also a fairly large focus, it seems, on geography, where they talk about how geography really affects history. So this would be like looking at things such as rivers and lakes and oceans and mountains and different natural obstacles and how that would help to decide where to start a city, where to have a port, how trade would happen between different civilizations, how civilizations would discover each other and interact with each other, how different bordering nations and societies would set up their borders, such as using a string of mountains to differentiate between two separate principalities and then using that to their advantage when it came to war, as well as trade and different things like this. And so they do a lot of connecting between the geography of different regions 
and history and the societies and local cultures and how those things interact. Overall, you have history classes that are in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, and through these three years of history, they cover everything from basically the beginning of time till the present day. And so they're going to get a full scope of all of history in the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade years. Now, the next related subject that I wanted to go over was government. The government classes split up government into multiple categories. You have civil government, you have self-government, you have family government, and you have church government. So the idea here is that these are all types of governments and hierarchies that have a big impact on us as individuals as well as society writ large. So a civil government would be what you would think of as the government, your official government for your country. Your self-government aspect would be you governing yourself and being in charge of your own actions, your own consequences, that kind of thing. Your family government would be the core family unit. You have parents that are in authority over their children and what rules they have in their homes, how they handle discipline issues, that kind of stuff. That is a form of government. You also have church governments. And so throughout history, Churches have played a huge role in Western civilization. The church has been one of the most dominant institutions throughout all of history until modern times. Atheism wasn't really much of a thing a few hundred years ago. It did exist and has existed throughout history, but it played a very minor role earlier on, whereas today there are plenty of people that believe that Maybe there is no God at all, that it's just something that happened out of chance through evolution, that kind of stuff. But my point here is that the church government and religious government has played a really big role in creating the morals for Western society, as well as how different countries have written their laws and decided how to structure their societies and individuals as well, how they live their lives. So the church government has had a really big impact on society as well. The types of content that they cover in the government classes, and I believe there are two government classes. I think there's government A and government B or government one, government two, however they identified these. And some of the other concepts were things like government intervention and what role that plays in the evolution of society. You have systems and a systematic approach where they look at the different systems of government and how those affect society as well and the systems of, like I said, family government, church government, this kind of stuff. So a more systems approach, which is something I'm definitely fond of, obviously. They cover a lot of modern examples, so things that kids can relate to. So they might do an example of maybe a current issue that the kids are aware of, such as legalizing drugs, and they'll cover how the governmental system addresses that, why the laws are the way that they are, how that would change if it was going to change, how that debate is taking place, what different systems and bureaucracies are involved, how these different types of governments are involved in this as well, because you have the civil government, but you also have the self-government. You make your own decisions on whether you're going to do drugs or not, ultimately. You also have your family 
family government has a very big impact on that. If your parents are extremely strict and basically never let you out of the house or spend the night at a friend's house, they're always home, you're probably not going to have many opportunities to smoke pot, for example. However, if they're always gone, they are very free-spirited and let you do whatever you want, discover things on your own, you might have much more of an opportunity to be involved and might have more of an inclination to do so as well. So that family government has a big impact, as well as church government, your morals. Some people believe that drugs are just immoral. They are wrong, and it's wrong to do that. Therefore, they are not going to do that. So that's the church government getting involved as well. The final concept that I wanted to mention was the politics of plunder. So that's something that I heard mentioned in the interview with one of the teachers of the government class, and he talked about how all modern governments are based on taxation, and so this, therefore, is plunder. They are stealing money from their populations, demanding it, not giving a choice, and then using that money to fund their bureaucracies, their government programs, what they want to do. And so this is basically plunder, but there is politics involved in how to do that, how to take money from people without them rising up in revolt, how to distribute this money and structure programs and convince them that they need you as a government and that you need these different programs and that they're good for you. And so there is a lot that goes on there. I've talked about much of this in this podcast, and so I could definitely relate to that idea. The phrase politics of plunder is something that appealed to me as well. I got that from reading Frederick Bastiat's book, The Law. That is one I would highly recommend. It's very short, but a very good read. It was written, I believe, back in the 1600s or something. It was a long time ago, but uh, very readable, very good, pretty short quick read, and he talks about plunder and the politics of plunder. So I don't know if that's a direct reference in this class to Bastiat's book or not, but that's the illusion that I got out of it. So let's move on to the next class. That would be the English classes. Now, with their English classes, they are largely built on the classical educational model. I talked about this in the homeschooling episode. That would be the trivium, which I have talked about in many other episodes on this podcast. You have grammar, logic, rhetoric. So in general, the kids are going to learn all their grammar. Then they're going to learn all their logic and how that grammar pieces together and sentence structure, that kind of stuff. Then they'll learn rhetoric, how to write very well and present themselves well and present ideas and argue points. And so that's the overall model that their English classes are based on. The early English class really focuses on autobiographies. It sounded to me like that was virtually the only thing that they looked at in the first year of English was autobiographies. The idea here is that an autobiography is written in a specific setting at a specific time, and so you really get a feel for that time period and how people viewed the world, their worldview in general, and that is something that really puts you into that setting and helps you understand it very well and relate to it. You also have the rhetoric aspect where you are hearing how people are presenting themselves and presenting a story and making it very interesting. So you get that rhetoric piece out of it as well. You also can pull out some universal methods and ideas and strategies. You can see how certain people were successful. 
you can see how they handled certain conflicts and certain issues that they had in their lives, how they overcame certain circumstances. And usually you can pull things out of that that you can apply to yourself. You can apply to the modern time. So apparently they start off by reading some recent autobiographies so they can relate very well. The language is something that they are familiar with, with the different idioms and the phrases that are used and the specific word choices as well, in addition to the cultural references that they'll be familiar with. And then they work their way back and do older and older autobiographies where they are still learning about the setting through learning someone's story. They are learning about rhetoric through seeing how they are presenting that story. They are learning some universal ideas and concepts through someone's life story that they can apply to themselves and to modern times. And so that's why they have a big focus on autobiographies. The idea is at the end of this first year, they will be able to write their own autobiography. And my understanding is that is a project they do at the end of the year and should be able to do this very well based on the skills that they have built up up to that point. Another big aspect of the English classes is that they connect very well to the other classes, and they do this intentionally. They're connecting it to Western lit. They're connecting it to Western civilization. So as they are learning about a specific time period in Western civilization, they might read a book that was written in that specific time period in their English class. And so if they're in their first year doing autobiographies, it might be an autobiography of a specific person. But as they proceed into the later years in their English classes, it would be more classical literature. Their reading assignments can be very varied as well. It can include anything from legal documents to songs or poems to stories or even just jokes as well as narrative fiction and nonfiction books and literature. So there is a wide range of things that they are being exposed to and that they're reading from. Some of them will be excerpts, as well as some of them being whole source documents and whole books. The goal of the English classes, as well as the Western Lit classes and the Western Civ classes, is to really understand a culture, to understand today's culture and modern culture, as well as the culture of the different time periods and settings that they are learning about. In order to do this, you have to look at many different aspects. You have to look at God and man, law, causation, and time. These are the five main aspects that you need to really know about to truly understand a culture. Again, God doesn't mean that everything is being looked at through a religious point of view. The idea is just that religion has played a major role in virtually every single society throughout all of history. So how a society views God and who God is or who the gods are, what their character is, how they relate, how they interact, how they created the world, how they affect the world currently or maybe don't, that kind of thing, that plays a big role in understanding a certain culture. Also, man, how do people interact with each other? What is the nature of man? Is man naturally good or is man naturally evil? What are our inclinations? 
that kind of thing. You get to law and what are the laws of the realm? What's the morality of the realm? What is considered good? What is considered bad? What is considered punishable? What are the punishments for certain things? You also have to look at causation. When this happens, that happened. This event might have been triggered by this other event. And you can look at how people view causation in relation to why things happen. So is it the gods that send a storm that ends up causing a lot of damage to a city? Or is that something that maybe the gods set up the weather patterns for the world and then stood back and let them just happen? So this is more of a random event. Or maybe the gods or God is not involved at all, and it's just something that happened. So how they understand causation and why things happen can play a big role in understanding a certain culture. You also have to understand time and how they viewed time, where they viewed themselves in history as far as they knew it, and what role time played in their everyday lives. So these types of things are things that you really need to know about if you are studying a culture, if you really want to understand that culture. You really have to understand their worldview. You have to understand the who, what, when, where, why. And one of the main ways to understand this is through literature through reading things like autobiographies and documents from the time and novels that were written in a certain time period. So you can really get a feel for what people were reading, what people were being exposed to, what people believed, how they viewed the world. These are the things you need to understand if you want to understand a culture or a society. You have to look at sovereignty, how they viewed sovereignty and God. You have to look at authority and what groups and hierarchies have authority over you and over society as a whole. Look at the laws that are in place, as well as sanctions that are imposed on people, whether it be positive or negative, whether it be by the government or by their local culture and their peers. You can look at succession and how they deal with things when someone dies or when a city moves or when some big event happens, that kind of stuff. What is the way that they view these events and how do they handle these events in relation to time there? And so these are the types of things that are gone over in those classes. So I'll move on to the business class. The business class is very focused on entrepreneurship. They're very big on being able to support yourself and having to rely only on yourself and not on other institutions and other people. The overall idea is that you're going to know how to start and how to grow a business as you go through their business class. So it's not just on learning the corporate structure. When I was in college, I actually had the goal of starting my own business when I graduated. And Unfortunately, the majority of my business classes, even though I was getting a degree in entrepreneurship and marketing, most of my classes were all about a corporate structure and the corporate world and how these big corporations and big companies and big factories operated, what their management models were. And some of that was helpful, but most of it really wasn't very helpful when I was just interested in starting my own small business. If I had been using the Ron Paul homeschooling curriculum, I probably would have had all of the knowledge and information that I needed when I graduated high school for knowing these types of things that I wanted to learn and wanted to know about. The final class I wanted to mention was personal finance. One of the main reasons is because personal finance is not a class that is taught in many public schools, 
but it is definitely taught here. They go over many very relevant aspects, such as setting up goals for yourself, specifically financial goals. They talk about time management and how to balance your time and your schedule. They look at budgets, obviously, and things like taxes. They look at how do you pay for things such as a car or a house or college. How do you make decisions about what car to buy or what college to go to? How do you handle things like investing, as well as just saving your money and having an emergency fund, these types of things? Overall, the view is that they have a very strong entrepreneurial perspective, very similar to their business class. It's much more about what you can produce versus what you can consume. And they definitely push towards the idea of producing, being productive, doing things for yourself, investing in yourself versus having a consumeristic mindset where you are going into debt, you are seeing what you can buy, what things you can accumulate that kind of stuff. Some of the concepts that I really liked hearing about was that the kids learn about inflation and what inflation is, how it affects them. They also will learn about how the economy affects individuals and themselves. So although this isn't an economics class, they will learn about how some economic aspects and the economy as a whole does have an effect on them and the job market and things like that. They also will learn a lot about going out on your own and how you can do that, how you make some of these big decisions, how you deal with your finances when you have to deal with all that on your own. You don't have help. You don't have your parents. So I felt like this personal finance class sounded like it was very beneficial and taught a lot of really relevant things. And so overall, with the Ron Paul homeschooling curriculum, I found that most of it did seem like it was oriented towards teaching very relevant information and very practical concepts that they can apply to their own lives, that they can apply to understanding the culture and society that they live in, as well as apply to going to college through things like the CLEP exams, where they can really get a huge head start, not only in their time and not having to go to college for as many years, but also in their money. They're not having to pay for as many classes if they're testing out of a lot of them. So that was very practical in my mind. I liked the idea that it's a very structured curriculum in a sense, and that you have specific classes and specific material that they're covering. But at the same time, it is very adaptive and very free-flowing, very interactive, where the kids are the ones that are doing all of this stuff. They actually sign a contract before they start the program saying that they will do what they are required to do. They are the ones responsible for watching the videos. If they have questions, they interact with the teachers and the other students. They're working on projects. They're doing all these things. They're doing writing assignments. They're having a speech day at the end of the week in their speech class. It seems like a fairly good blend of some self-directed learning where they're the ones that are taking charge of their own education, but it's also fairly structured. So if it is a child or a parent that is more geared towards having a systematic approach and a very organized approach, then this is something that would fit them very well. My opinion is that this is how school should be. This is how every school, public school, should be structured is roughly in this way, teaching these types of things through these types of methods. 
Now, I probably won't pursue this specific curriculum when my wife and I continue with homeschooling. We do plan on homeschooling our children, and we are not going towards a more structured approach. We are going for more of a Charlotte Mason, unschooling, classical method blend kind of a thing. And so we're much more loose in our structure and that is our plan. But I still really do like the Ron Paul homeschooling curriculum. I like how they've laid things out. I really like a lot of the teachers and the types of things that they teach. So that was something I was very interested in, and I enjoyed researching. The final educational program I wanted to cover was in relation to college alternatives, and this is the Praxis program. I will go over this one a little more quickly since this episode is running a little long. So the idea here is that you have a one-year program, and throughout this year, you develop professional skills, you apprentice at a high-growth startup, and you build up a network and do a lot of networking. They believe that college is definitely not for everyone, and not because people are not smart enough to go to college or not qualified enough, but more because a lot of college is a waste. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of time in many ways, at least for many fields and many careers. And instead of going to college, they feel like they can give people the skills they need and hook them up on a career path that makes them very successful and meets people's goals. And they can do this in one year fairly cheaply. Overall, their statistics are very good. They have roughly 96% of their students that graduate are hired after the program. They make on average $50,000 a year. And so this would be like a college freshman getting a $50,000 a year job and launching their career at that point. That's pretty good. The tuition for the program and the total cost is $12,000. However, at the same time, you earn as an apprentice roughly $15,000 at a minimum. And so you end up net making $3,000 over the course of your year instead of what you would net going to college for a year, much less four years, where you are spending thousands of dollars to do this. The program is split up into two six-month sections The first six months is geared towards professional development and doing a very intensive professional development boot camp. Then the second six months is focused on the apprenticeship at a growing startup. So for the boot camp, it is all remote, so you don't have to move to any physical location. You can do this at your home as long as you obviously have the appropriate resources, such as an internet connection and a computer. But what you do is you focus on building a personal brand, you learn how to market your strengths and your skills, you do monthly educational modules on value creation, so you're doing some projects that you are developing yourself and working on as a team with other people in the program, you are doing weekly deliverables to showcase your skills and the things that you are learning, so you are doing some smaller weekly projects as well. You also have weekly workshops and weekly advising sessions 
to help you along as you are going through the program. And the entire time, you are having interactions with fellow participants through forums and chat rooms. I think they have a Slack channel, and you're working on some stuff together. You're talking together. You're building a network and a community. And all of these things that you are doing and that you are learning and the projects and the advising, all of this is geared and oriented towards really building a lot of these skills that they feel you need in the workplace for specific careers and jobs. When you get to months five and six, at the very end of this first time period, at the end of the first six months of the boot camp, those final two months are heavily focused on job hunting tools and strategies. They are focused on creating a tailored pitch and creating a talent profile that you can show a potential employer. So basically, it's all about launching you into a career and getting a job where you want to get one, making yourself very hireable and very desirable, these types of things. And this is very fitting since this is the end of the boot camp session and it is getting into actually working at a specific startup company as an apprentice. The overall roles that they generally cover are sales, marketing, customer success, and operations. They feel at Praxis that these are skills that are needed in pretty much every single company. Every company is selling something, a product or a service. It doesn't matter. They are selling something. So sales is definitely going to be an aspect. Every company is marketing themselves in some way. Marketing is always going to be a part of a company. Customer success is always a very important thing. You have to get customers, you have to retain them, you have to do things like quality control and doing projects for specific customers, that kind of thing. You also have operations, so your everyday management, your day-to-day operations, these kinds of things. So all of these areas are going to be involved in just about every business or corporation out there in the world. And if you go out on your own, start your own business, you're going to have to handle every single one of these yourself. So these are very important things, and those are things that they are really focused on in the boot camp stage, and you basically key in on one of these areas to really focus on as you go into your apprenticeship. Now, with the apprenticeship, you're actually doing real work. You're working for an actual company. It will be a startup, but not a brand new company. It'll be a growing startup, but it'll be one that's small enough where you can actually shadow the founder or the founders or the executives at the highest levels. So you can actually learn from them. You talk with them, you interact with them, and they help mentor you and show you what it's like. And you can basically learn from someone who is where you eventually want to be. They are in a leadership role at a high growth company, running things, being innovative, growing, all of this kind of stuff, managing people, managing projects. And so you are going to gain a lot of knowledge and experience just by being around them and shadowing them. While you are working in this apprenticeship, you are going to be focused on 
completing self-driven projects and just overall experiencing a startup, experiencing the atmosphere, the day-to-day operations, all of this kind of stuff. So you're actually doing hands-on work with specific projects that you are steering yourself. You're coming up with a lot of these. You're working on them yourself. You're also shadowing a founder and someone that is high up in that company. You are doing real work for that company and you are experiencing the atmosphere and what's going on, what the different roles are, all of this kind of stuff. So you're getting a really good feel for things as well as gaining job experience as well as still learning. And you are also in this whole time period building a network. You're networking, you're building connections, you're getting to know people, which is extremely important as you get into your career. Praxis has connections with many different companies. Most of them are in major cities around the U.S., so places like Atlanta, Austin, Chicago, San Francisco, a lot of these big cities that have a startup culture. So you do actually have to pick up and move once you get into this second six-month time period of the program when you do the apprenticeship. You have to move to one of these locations and apprentice at one of these companies. I read some reviews and some testimonials by people that have been through the program, and apparently a lot of them feel that this move was a very big deal for them and a very positive thing where they really went out on their own, they experienced a new culture. They learned a lot of new things, not only in their work, but just through the moving experience and living in a new place. And many of the participants ended up connecting with current or former Praxis participants where they could help find a place to live and know their way around a city, get involved, get connected in places, and they can use that network within Praxis to help them with these different aspects of moving and working and learning and all this stuff. While people are doing the apprenticeship, there is a minimum of $2,500 a month that they are earning. So this is where that $15,000 of profits through the program come from. It comes from this $2,500 a month or more that you are earning through your apprenticeship. And that's something that is negotiable above the $2,500 a month mark. But that is actually a fairly significant salary, especially if you are just acting as an apprenticeship and doing things like still learning and job shadowing. So all in all, the Praxis program is something that is definitely not the conventional educational model after high school. You are not taking gen ed classes. You're not even taking specific classes at all. You don't have set teachers. You're doing a much more different approach to your education and your career, launching your career. You are learning in a different way. You are learning different skills. But a lot of them are, again, very practical. They're very applicable. They are skills that employers really want and they're looking for. And that's the idea with the Praxis program. They want to give you the skills that employers are actually looking for. They're actually wanting to hire people with these certain skills. You will have these certain skills as you go through the program, and therefore you are very likely to get hired on. They will look at what field you want to get into, what type of company you want to work for, what area you want to specialize in, and really customize your education towards those things, steer your apprenticeship towards that area. And so it's something that is 
cheaper and quicker and often much more effective than a college degree, much less just one year of college compared to this one year of a Praxis program, then all of a sudden you're launching your career at an average of $50,000 a year. That's pretty good. So that will wrap up everything I wanted to hit on this case study episode. We talked about the Sudbury School model as an example of a formal school setting-ish. We also talked about the Ron Paul homeschooling curriculum as an example of a specific homeschooling program, and I obviously just did Praxis for a specific college alternative and got into more of the details of what that program looks like and how that is carried out. With this, I am now wrapping up this series on education alternatives and movements within the education realm, and this will be the end of season one Overall, I am going to come back with another episode that focuses on a lot of the takeaways from season one, some of the overarching ideas and some of the concepts that we can pull out of that. So throughout season one, a lot of the things have been a little more isolated. I wanted to make sure episodes could stand alone if they needed to and someone was interested in only learning about the Federal Reserve. Then they can listen to an episode that focuses on that, and they don't have to listen to all the others to really get it. But as I'm sure you have realized if you have listened to the whole season or at least large sections of it, many of these episodes build on each other. The concepts build on each other. And as you go through season one of our foundations, you're really building an overall picture of society and our current culture and how these things have evolved and how these specific systems have affected us through government, money, and education. And so the next episode I'll do after this one. We'll look at all of these overall concepts and ideas, tie a lot of these things together, try to make some of those connections before we move on to season two and get into a slightly different focus. So if you have not done so, please make sure that you go back and listen to the season two preview that I did a few episodes ago. And if you have not sent anything in on that and given me your feedback and opinions, please do so because I am getting very close to producing that and starting that. And I really would like as much input as possible from you, the listener. So I really know what you're looking for, what you enjoy, that kind of stuff. At this point, I will give my thank yous to those who have left ratings and reviews, those who have emailed me, those who have gone to the Patreon page and our current honorable patron that is giving financially to the show, as well as those of you who have followed on Twitter. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling people about the podcast. Thank you for all of your support of all kinds. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.